So tonight, we look at the Battle of Armageddon. And um, I'm going to give it to you in a way that um, maybe you've never looked at it before, and in a way that I'll be ad admitting is hard for me to look at it. But um, we're going to look at it as the flip side of the coming of Christ. Almost everybody in our society knows about Armageddon. You, you say Armageddon to anybody, they're not going to say, huh, what's that? They know, because it's famous. They may not believe it, but it's famous. You know, they've, they've heard of it. And they say, oh yeah, that's, that's um, you know. And, and they have some idea of what it's about. But I, I really think when we are in Old Testament prophecy, and then of course we're dealing here with New Testament prophecy, so in other words, we're talking about things that haven't happened yet, things that are still to come. And the principle, I don't know how many times I've said it, but I'll just keep saying it until I can't say it anymore, yeah. is that prophecy is best understood once it's fulfilled. So good men are going to disagree, especially on a lot of the fine points. There's schools of thought of prophecy, and we'll talk about that when we get to Revelation 20. That's where you really get your divisions of schools of thought when it comes to prophecy. But what we're going to do tonight is just look at the coming of the Lord and what it means and how Armageddon fits into all of that. So as we've been through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, going through it, you know, sometimes bigger chunks, sometimes going a little bit slower, we saw when we got to Revelation chapter 12, I'm not going to read it, but if you've been following along, you know this to be the case. In Revelation chapter 12, we see one of the most important chapters in understanding the book of Revelation. Because it's really the story. It's given to you right there in Revelation chapter 12. Of how Satan, of course, roars against uh, the coming of Messiah. Tries to kill Messiah before Messiah can come. And it's just waiting for for the, the mother to deliver her baby so he can swallow it up. But put in capsulized form, what happens in Revelation 12 is the baby is born and caught up to heaven. But of course that's not actually what happened, is it? We know. We're, we're putting this in capsulized form. That's what God's doing. The baby is born, uh, grows and, and lives and does die. But by his death actually destroys Satan. You know, so there you go. Satan was trying to destroy Messiah, and Messiah by his death actually opens up the new covenant. And now he is taken up to heaven, and now he does sit and rule and reign there. And this enrages Satan, because this has happened. So what does he do? He turns his attention to the children turns his attention to the church is what he turns his attention to and begins to go on massive campaigns to destroy the people of God. Of course he fails because people of God are still here, right? So he's failed, but there are casualties in the battle and we call them the martyrs. That's Revelation chapter 20 in a nutshell and it really helps us to see what has happened and what is happening even today. <coughs> Well, Armageddon is God's vengeance upon this present wicked world. It's about the total destruction of everything we see. And uh, we've seen it in, in many, many forms. We're going to look at Armageddon as it appears throughout the book of Revelation in just a few minutes. 
And this is a, a really kind of extensive outline. I don't know how far I'll get on it. I don't think I'll get as far as I've written. Um, and I gave up, as you see, uh, after verse 16, because I don't think I'm going to get to verse 16. But we'll see. Time. I'm watching the clock. Time. Watching bodies. See how much we can endure. See how much we can take in before our eyes glaze over and we say, well, okay. <laughs> we'll start again <laughs> next week. So that's what we're doing here tonight. Babylon rises up. Think of Babylon as sinful, wicked human culture. And certainly we live in Babylon, as we've said many times. And um, the interesting thing about Babylon is it doesn't last. Okay? It doesn't last. It, it's always destroyed. It always falls, and guess what takes its place? Babylon. It's a different Babylon. It rises up. Again, a wicked culture. It may not be the same wicked culture, but a wicked culture nonetheless. Just think about the difference of uh, America's view of um, like homosexuality, um, now transgenderism, and uh, trying to help people realize they aren't what they think they are. They, they, they're something else, okay? Just think about that. Okay, that's Babylon. Then think about Afghanistan, where women aren't even allowed to go to school. They're second-class citizens. Persecution. Uh, yeah, just try to be a homosexual in Afghanistan. Okay? You won't. You won't. They'll, they'll kill you, you know? Just a different way of being Babylon. So, you know, we've seen... And I mentioned this, I think I mentioned it maybe at the ladies' breakfast. It's hard when you're preaching three times on Sunday and doing a ladies' breakfast on Saturday. Everything kind of blends together if you're not careful. Try to keep them separate. But, you know, uh, think of California in 2008. 2008, um, the people of California, with Proposition 8, voted against same-sex marriage. Said, no, we're not going to put it in the Constitution, it's not going to be legal. You know, and we went to court. Courts threw it out and said there will be gay marriage in the state of California against the will of the people. But guess what's happened since that happened in 2008? It now is the will of the people. Do you doubt with me that if the, a vote was taken today that it wouldn't pass by an overwhelming march? Absolutely, that gay marriage would be brought in with an overwhelming, well, it's already here anyway. Okay, but now we've reached the point not just of acceptance, but if you don't accept gay marriage, you're a bigot. You are evil. You are bad. What's wrong with you? Well, that's where we've gotten. It, and it just keeps going that way. Transgenderism's doing that now. And uh, what comes next? I don't know what comes next, but I do know this. Things never stay the same. They either get better or they get worse. Okay? That's just, that's human history. Human history will tell you that things are going to get better or they're going to get worse. Okay? So, we'll see what happens next. Maybe 20 years from now, we'll have this talk again. Okay? And find out what's going on. Okay. But you know, the interesting thing is, Satan is the one that destroys Babylon. That's what we found out when we were reading about Babylon's destruction. It was anti-Christian government and anti-Christian religion that rose up together to destroy Babylon. 
You say, well, how can Satan fight against Satan? If he's Satan is divided against Satan, then he'll have an end. In God's providence, Satan fights against Satan. And that's what happens. You know, they accused Christ of doing that. But Christ wasn't Satan fighting against Satan. You know, that was the example he gives. So Babylon, human society, culture, it falls, it rises, it falls, rises, often being destroyed by the evil world system itself, anti-Christian government, anti-Christian religion. The beast and the false prophet. Well, Armageddon is the end of all things. It's the flip side of the coming of Christ. Christ comes to gather his people in the second coming. It's the greatest thing. It's the wonderful thing. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's his appearing. Christ comes to destroy all his and our enemies at his second coming. And that's Armageddon. Okay. With that introduction, that's why I gave you a, a big old blank spot there. You could actually take some notes there if you wanted to do. Uh, but I don't, I'll tell you what I don't think Armageddon is. I don't think Armageddon are all the armies of the world gathering together to try to fight against either the Jews or against God. I think what we have is it's the, it's the battle that is going on even today but it reaches its zenith. It reaches its final, you know, greatest th- at the end. And then they're destroyed, you know. We'll talk about different views of that when we get to Revelation chapter 20. And, um, and then the little season that, that Satan is loosed. There's two different views there uh, about what that means. And uh, we'll, we'll be fair to, to share both of them. And then you can decide. Turn to Psalm 2. That's where we'll start tonight. Psalm 2 is an Old Testament prophecy that talks about these very things that we're talking about tonight. Very familiar passage, quoted often in the New Testament, not surprising. It's going to take me a while to get to some of these passages tonight. It's a different Bible than I'm used to. A little tiny Bible this time. <laughs> Hope I can read it. <laughs> Print's pretty good. But I'm not used to turning the pages in it. Okay, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Here's this gathering against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Why was he laugh? Is it really a threat? Can people be a threat to God? Of course not. So he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me. I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And that's where we live today. This is what's happening today. The gospel goes forward. It doesn't go forward in every nation at every time. There are nations that manage to um, you know, succumb to basically close the gospel down. I don't believe it can be closed down 100%. But they work to close the gospel down uh, through persecution, drive the church underground, all those sorts of things, you know. 
But um, there's also times that the gospel goes freely. Kind of interesting, Cuba is a good contemporary example of what can happen. Uh, Cuba was a very close country. The churches were in, in grave danger over in Cuba. And, and then the Pope came to visit. And, and when the Pope came to visit, um, Cuba relaxed almost all of their religious um, uh, persecutions against uh, even Reformed Baptists. And Reformed Baptists have a pretty good footprint over in Cuba. And so all those restrictions were lifted and churches could meet freely. And now guess what's happened? It's happening again. Persecution of Christians. Persecution of churches. It's happening again. Some places greater, some places lesser. Um, that's the way persecution almost always is. It's, it's rarely worldwide. It's usually localized. That's the way persecution usually goes. Throughout history it's been that way. And even in a country as small as Cuba, some places have more freedom of worship than others. But, um, you know, that, that, short, that was a pretty short-lived window of opportunity, you know, that uh, was granted there. Oh, they're still meeting, you know. They're, they're still meeting. And there's still churches. And, and some of our men are still able to go there and, and do uh, seminars and train pastors. But, um, you know, they've used the COVID laws to make it really, really hard for the churches in Cuba. Okay, so we've gone that far. Let's finish the Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We're going to see that very language uh, that uh, is in Armageddon uh, tonight. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all they who take refuge in him. And so here's kind of the framework. And of course, the son that it talks about is uh, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're reading this with Old Testament eyes, you go, oh, okay, this, this is the Messiah that's to come, the son of David. And it's true, it is. And then you read it with New Testament eyes and you go, oh, that's Jesus Christ the Lord, the Messiah. Isn't it interesting that um, uh, the, the, the Jews of today that are religious Jews, most are not religious, but the religious Jews have a Bible. And if they do read their Bible, sometimes they're reading their other stuff instead, but if they do read their Bible, here it is right there. Jesus Christ plainly displayed before them. Okay, well, Armageddon is the final fulfillment of Psalm 2. It's the final battle. When Psalm 2 is fulfilled, there's no more enemies. Psalm 2 is a warning. Repent now before it's too late. The enemies of God are going to suddenly be destroyed in a moment by the brightness of His coming. That's 2 Thessalonians 3. So remember, we're, we're talking about future prophecy. So, um, you know, we can only look at the big picture. And um, nobody... And we'll all get to heaven someday, all the different schools of thought, and go, yeah, 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 okay. I, I guess we got that one wrong, <laughs> you know. It's future prophecy. We could, should expect to not get it all right. We're doing the, we do the best that we can. Well, with all that being said and done, the fight is over, the victory is won. Eternally the victory is won, as we see in chapters 20 through 22 to close the book. I don't think... I'll just be blunt, I don't think Armageddon is a literal battle with literal armies 
literally taking up warfare to try to destroy either the Jews or the church or God himself, you know. And it's kind of interesting how things change. I guess things have to change in, in interpretation. Uh, it used to be very popular to talk about a seven-year tribulation. It's becoming popular, more popular now uh, in those circles to take chapters 6 through 19 and compress them into a three-and-a-half-year cycle instead of a seven-year cycle. And there's a reason for that. If you've been listening carefully, uh, you've heard many, many times we've talked about three-and-a-half years, we talked about 42 months, 1,260 days. All of those are three-and-a-half years. And so that, that has been seen, and they say, you know, it probably isn't a seven-year tribulation at all. In fact, um, uh, it, it could be that uh, things go very nicely for the first three and a half years, and it's the last three and a half years. That's the great tribulation now. I, I would spiritualize it, but I'm just saying some of our dispensational friends have now taken that tactic and, you know, have, have actually moved along in their thinking. But I'll tell you the truth. It is hard for me not to think of tanks and, and guns and bombs and war and and all those things when you say Armageddon. Because that's just what you think of. It's even in our culture to do that. I believe 70 AD was the literal battle of armies. It was the surrounding of Jerusalem. It was the destruction of the temple. It was the destruction of Jerusalem. It was the horrible, terrible, terrible slaughter. And now what we're awaiting is the final great worldwide slaughter that will be done by God himself. And there will not be an enemy standing. Okay. We've already seen Armageddon a number of times. Let's read some of those times. It's the very top of your, the very top here, chapter 6. First place we saw Armageddon was in chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. I think by reading these various places where there is Armageddon, it's going to help us understand what Armageddon actually is and, and the warfare pictures that are given. Revelation chapter 6, verse number 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. I think we can see this is figurative language. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Okay. Whenever we see that in the Old Testament too, talking about the great day of wrath, it's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, go to chapter 11. Verse, we'll start in verse 15. Revelation 11, verse 15. Another picture. These are pictures. These are visions. They're not to be taken literally. They're giving us a panoramic view of what God is doing when Christ Jesus the Lord returns. And then we'll read 11 through, chapter 19, 11 through 21 and actually see the picture of the return itself from that angle. 
11.15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, hmm, Psalm 2, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So there's another picture of the second coming and uh, from the negative side of the lost. Chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, there's the unholy fake trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to, it doesn't say it, deceive them, but it does, and to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, the Lord says, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So there's that. How about 17, verse 14? Let's see. Um, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he's Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And then chapter 20, let's skip all the way to chapter 20. And we see it in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they shall be torn tormented day and night forever. And then you notice the very next thing that happens is I saw the great white throne. And the, and the great judgment passage. We'll be going through that verse by verse um, in a few weeks there in chapter 20. Okay, so let's read the Armageddon passage that we're going to start looking at verse by verse then. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. We saw that just a few moments ago. Um, and... Um, uh, and he'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And I'll read the rest of it, but I know we won't get this far. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. You know, we're going to have the Lord's Supper, but this is uh, the supper you don't want to go to. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Kind of takes everybody in. Because it does. It's everybody, you know. Everybody that is outside of Christ. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Well, okay. Now we see that taking place. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Symbolic language, absolutely. And uh, we also need to see what the symbolism is. So now let's uh, go ahead and, and start working that way. We'll start in verse number 11. We'll just work our way down um, as far as we can here. 1911, then I saw heaven opened. That's the signal that we're starting a new vision. Okay, so now a new vision is coming here. Uh, he was talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those are where those that believe uh, of God and, and trusting God are in heaven, enjoying the, the beauty and wonders of heaven in the intermediate state, waiting for, waiting for uh, the, the final consummation, you know. So, you know, I saw heaven open signals a new vision. We saw that in 4.1. That was said that way too. And it's a transitional verse. The white horse. The white horse. I think you can figure out what that is. White means purity in the book of Revelation. Uh, sometimes people get confused about that a little bit when they're thinking about it because the uh, there's the four horsemen of the apocalypse that it talks about uh, back in chapter 6. And, um, but there's not a white horse there. It's a pale horse. The pale horse is, um, you know, death. And so this is the white horse that, that symbolically the Lord rides upon. And uh, then it says the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And this comes directly from the book of Revelation, faithful and true, 22.6 tells us that um, if you just flip over there for a second um, and he said to me these words are trustworthy and true and the Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must take place soon and behold I am coming soon blesses the one who keeps the prophecy of this book and then the Lord Jesus Christ describes himself as faithful and true uh, to in chapter 2 of the book. Picked a bad day to use a different Bible. <laughs> chapter 2, verse 15, and this is to the church in, in Pergamos. It says, so also you have some, I think that may be the wrong verse though, let's see. Um, 2.15, so you also have some that hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Oh, three, 3.14, thank you. Thank you, I've got an editor that's helping me. <laughs> I appreciate that. 
Uh, well, okay, 314. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Thank you for the help there. Don't know where I got 215 from, but uh, there you go. It's in print, so it can't be erased. And uh, there it is. Yeah. And then... In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Make sure you keep your finger. No, you don't need to keep your finger. You got a paper. You can read it as we go here. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. And I'll just read you Acts 17, verse 21. Uh, Paul and Silas and, uh, are, are preaching here. And um, yeah, 31. Okay. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And this he's given assurance of by all, by raising him from the dead. So in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And then we have a host of scriptures And uh, I'll just read them to you very quickly here and see which ones I have written out. Um, Anyway, Psalm 9.8 says, He shall judge the world in righteousness. That's what it actually says. Psalm 96.13 says, For he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 98.9 is very similar to that. You can look those verses up later. And uh, for Christians who come to God by faith, covered by the blood of Christ, and having Christ fulfilled the law for us, the judgment is our vindication. For the lost, it's their deserved destruction. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. That symbolizes Christ as the judge. His eyes as a flame of fire. And um, chapter 1, verse number 14 this is the, the description of the Lord, symbolically, that um, John tells us about that he saw. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, and there's the, the white aspect of it that we saw with the horse and the purity. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And then, as often happens with the symbolism that we see of the vision of Christ that John has in chapter 1, That vision is used to highlight to the churches some aspect of Christ to them personally. And so here in chapter 2, verse 18, uh, we see this happening to the church in Pergamos. And that's probably where I got mixed up there Uh, in 2.18. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. Talking about the heretics and the apostates that are in the midst of their church. This is how God will take care of them. And of course the word of his, by the word of his mouth is um, actually the, the word of God. The sword of my mouth is the word of God. And it's the word of God that takes care of these things. It's what judges today. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who has it. And, um, oh, I read the wrong passage. I am sorry. <laughs> Let me read you what I was trying to get to. Then to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire 
and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, so there we have the picture there. On his head are many diadems. On his head are many diadems. And we see this in chapter 2, verse number 10, diadems being crowns. And it tells us there, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. A short period of time is what that means. And you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And that's what we're talking about. Look at 3.11. We see it again. These crowns and these crowns being distributed by him uh, to his faithful people. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And then 4.4, the same kind of idea around the throne with 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. But what does it say about the Lord himself here? Okay. So, you know, we've, we've seen that Christ is able to weed out from the church through church discipline when it's properly administered. And that's what Revelation 2, 18 through 23 was about. And 23, of course, being uh, what we saw about the, uh, the crowns and such like that. On his head were many diadems. Okay. Now, we saw that the devil and the beast wore diadems. Fate claims to sovereignty. And you notice both the beast and the devil are destroyed in chapter 19 and 20. Because Jesus is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's what it says in verse 16 of 19. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, we'll see if we get down that far here tonight. But um, many diadems. So the beast has ten. Christ has many. You know. And it's just how much better, how much stronger. True sovereignty is what we're talking about. And then an interesting one is he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So, well, wait a minute. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. How, how, wow, what, would it, what would that be? What would that name be? Now turn to Isaiah chapter 62. A name written that no one knows but himself. It's actually taken from Isaiah 62, this idea here. And it's not a great mystery. It's not some, some odd, mysterious thing that we just have to try, to try to figure out what that name is. Sometimes people fall into traps like that. Isaiah 62, and I'll start from the beginning. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of God. So you can see this is really taken from the diadems and the new name. It's taken from Isaiah 62 here. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But she shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. 
for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your son shall marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. Now we see a lot of imagery there. We see imagery of the, the marriage supper. We see imagery of God's people and how precious they are to our Lord. You know. But the name that's written that no one knows, he's been given a name. And uh, the church, one of the churches, that's the promise they have too, they'll have a new name. And of course, his name is the Messiah. His name is Jesus the Lord is that way. But only God knows himself perfectly. And no one knows Christ Jesus the Lord perfectly because he's the infinite God. So you can never know him to the end. We've talked many times about we'll spend all of eternity learning more about God. Okay, we've said that many times. Well, we're going to spend all of eternity knowing more about the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who is God. He's included in that along with the Holy Spirit. This is all what God, God is one. And so we'll spend all of eternity uh, really never getting to the bottom of infinity. Because by definition, you can't come to the end of infinity. So there you go. So we continue on just uh, maybe one more. We're in Isaiah, so we can do one more. We'll just do one more. And then we can work our way through the rest next time. He's clothed, verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. You know, so he has a new name that no one knows but himself that talks about his infinity and the fact that we can never get to the end of it, uh, the end of him. But then we find out what his name is. It's the Word of God. Well, let's look at Isaiah 63 first. Since we're here, we may as well turn over a page and see this picture. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We actually have a hymn in our hymn book that I, I love to sing, and it comes from here. You know, who is this that comes from Edom? All his garments uh, in, dipped in blood. You know, okay, and it's a good song. Um, a good hymn. It really follows the course of a psalm. Comes from scripture. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Bozrah. He is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads out the winepress? The answer is, I trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. The lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled. There was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. Okay. And then verse 6, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Pretty terrible, pretty stark. It's awful. It is awful, but it's not as awful as sin. Not as awful as rebellion against God. It's not as awful as the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there is a heaven and there's a hell. That, that's as simple and as plain as we can make it. And this world that we know is not going to last forever. There's going to be an end to it. And that's what Armageddon is about. And the other side of the coin is the second coming of Christ, the blessed hope. 
you know, that's what we have. I'll just conclude with John chapter 1. I won't read the whole chapter. But you notice the name by which he's called is the Word of God. John is the author of Revelation. And so John is the one that penned these words. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And um, verse 14 to close tonight. Then we'll go to the Lord's table. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Amen. I may the Lord bless. And we'll continue with Understanding Armageddon, part two. And Lord willing, finish the rest of the chapter. And then work our way into chapter 20, as time permits.